Well, good evening. Welcome back to our series on the prophets and prophecy. As you can tell, we're kind of going through this thematically. I mean, if there are 12 minor prophets, four major prophets, and many prophets that didn't write. And so to do each one of them would take a long time, but I'm hoping that by doing the themes that unite their prophecy and their ministries, you'll get exposed to a lot of the prophets and maybe unlock reading them with a little more value to reading those prophets. So tonight, uh, there's the number to text your questions. As always, we're happy to answer questions during class, so just text them in there. So let me say a prayer for us, and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you for the mercies that you have shown to us. We're grateful for the freedoms that we have, that we can come together, we can freely worship you, we can study your word, and Father, that you've opened doors for us to have an impact on those around us. We pray for the faith to trust you. We pray for the courage to act on it. Lord, I pray for everyone here, for those who need comfort, those who need healing. And I pray for your nearness and your presence. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this is going to move through. The thread of this lesson is moving historically and you're gonna hear the history of Israel oh, four or five times in this series. And by the end, it will be sticking and you will have this historical framework to plug in the prophets at least. But the theme is justice. And I wanna show you, I wanna trace the evolution of justice basically through the pre-biblical time and then through the biblical prophets. So I wanna start in a little bit of an unusual place. And I wanna start with what the Code of Hammurabi. So historically speaking, Hammurabi was the king of Babylon. And on the far right, you'll see what is modern day Iraq. But that is Babylon uh, around the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And it's sort of the cradle of civilization. But Hammurabi was king in the 18th century BC. So I believe he reigned 1792 to 1750 BC. This, to equate this to what's going on, I'm gonna use traditional dating for all of the biblical dates. So you may wanna argue some of these dates, that's great. I'm just gonna use the traditional dates so it's just easier that way. So in the 18th century BC, if you translate that over to Genesis, then you are looking at uh, Isaac and then Jacob afterwards. You're looking at the patriarchal period, Abraham circa 2000 BC, and so his sons, Isaac and Jacob. So that's what's going on. You can see they're not a nation yet. They, uh, they're not a people group at that time. The Babylonians are the dominant civilization in the north. And then obviously in the south, Egypt has been, is, and likely will be the dominant civilization through all of history. Egypt is always a powerhouse in the south and then Babylon in the north. So Hammurabi is known to history. There are awful lot of kings of Babylon, but he's known for his law code. And that uh, stone that you see in the center is the, uh, it's an obelisk. And I'll show you who some of the players are. You'll see two figures on the top. The figure on the right is the sun god 
uh, Shamash. And the figure on the left is Hammurabi. So the f- what does this mean? It means that Hammurabi is receiving his authority to make laws. Think of late, much, much, much later uh, with the kings of England, you get this idea of the divine right of kings, meaning I'm not just king because uh, you know, I was born in the right place, I'm king because the gods want me to be king. That's what this is all about. That's what that picture is about, is that Hammurabi's laws, even though they come from him, they have the divine authority of the gods behind it. I want you to pay attention to that. So the gods are basically giving their stamp of approval to what Hammurabi is doing in the laws. The rest of this shtila are the laws themselves. And I put out an excerpt, and I'll tell you the point of why I wanted to start here. But listen to this excerpt from the laws of Hammurabi. If a man should put out the eye of another man, his eye shall be put out. If he break another man's bone, his bone shall be broken. An eye for an eye, right? Equivalency, injustice. But it takes a little twist. If he puts out the eye of a freedman or breaks the bone of a freedman, well then it's not his eye or his bone, he shall pay one gold mina. In other words, you'll pay a fine. If he shall put out the eye of a man's slave or break the bone of a man's slave, he shall pay one half of the slave's value. And then look at this. This uh, is excerpted from later in the code. If anyone strikes the body of a man higher in rank than himself, he shall receive 60 blows with an ox whip in public. So uh, there's been a lot that's been said that here's the code of Hammurabi, in 1750 BC, and you're gonna see next, I wanna talk to you about the Torah, the law of Moses, circa 1400 BC, 350 years later. And it's been very popular to say that the Torah, the 10 commandments, the law of Moses, is just another law code like Hammurabi's. But there are huge consequential differences And that's what I wanted to point out. First, this code of Hammurabi represents the innate human desire for justice. There's something in every human being that is wired, we would say it's because we're created in the image of God. And even though sin has has tarnished that image, that sin has bent us away from our original purpose, we still have these inbuilt, a desire, we have a desire to love, we have inbuilt compassion, we have this inbuilt sense of rightness or justice to be done. All humanity has that. But it is bent by sin. So the Code of Hammurabi is an important development because it's a better expression of the innate human desire for justice than anything that had gone before it. So it is good, but it's very, very flawed. There is a war inside human beings between justice and self-interest, between justice and power and privilege. And you see that reflected 
in a very human product. The Code of Hammurabi is a human product. It's not like there's any claim that the god Shamash said these are the laws that humanity is supposed to live by. No, this is Hammurabi. This is a human product. And as a human product, it, you see this tension at work, the desire to do what's right, but the desire for power and privilege. Consequently, it's an eye for an eye if somebody in your socioeconomic class. There were fundamentally, fundamentally three big classes of people in the ancient world. I mean, it's much more, it's more complicated than that, but fundamentally, you have slaves at the bottom. And so slaves were owned. Either chattel slavery, you're owned forever, or bond servant, you are owned for a period of time. But either way, you're a slave, lowest rung. And you notice that if you put out the eye of a slave, you just pay a fine. A freedman was, were people who came out of bond service or occasionally slaves that were freed, stayed in their master's service, but did so as a free person. So they were not the top level, but they at least weren't slaves anymore. They were freedmen. And freedmen were valuable and they had some rights, but notice, again, if you did something to a freedman, you just paid a fine. And so it was the law and the application of justice was segregated by socioeconomic classes. And so the point I wanna make is this, there is a desire for justice, but the human desire for power and prestige corrupts it, if you will. For example, the Code of Hammurabi is considered by historians to be a huge achievement. But if those were the laws of our land today, we would consider that to be extremely unjust, right? In other words, we got one law for these kind of people and we got one law for those kind of people. Now stop smirking. I know it works out that way sometimes, but those are not the way our laws are encoded, are they? And in fact, whenever we see something like this happen, there's a sense of wrongness to us. And I'll tell you why that is. But in Hammurabi's day, this was progress. But it's basically a compromise between power and privilege on one hand and uh, our, our desire for justice on the other. So let's fast forward to Moses and Mount Sinai. So if you remember, again, circa 1400 BC, Moses leads God's people out of slavery in Egypt and they make their way south in the Sinai Peninsula to Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and God gives him the Torah, the law of Moses. There are 10 commandments but there are actually 613 laws in the law of Moses. And so this law code that governs every aspect of life was given by God to Moses. It wasn't like Shamash said, Hammurabi, you're my guy, do whatever you wanna do. This was God saying, these are the rules that I am giving my people. Moses, you will communicate them. Do you see the difference? And that's hugely different than any other law code in the ancient Near Eastern literature, Hammurabi or anybody else. Fundamentally very different. God is the one making these laws. So I wanna give you a few of, of these laws and I want you to see how this law code does not 
have the tension between justice and power and privilege because it's not a human being giving this code of justice. So for example, and, and I'm just picking three or four passages. This is all over the law of Moses. Exodus 22, you shall not wrong a sojourner. A sojourner is somebody who's not in your tribe and not from your country, but they live here. And so they're an immigrant. It's not exactly an immigrant, but think of it as an immigrant. Do not wrong them or oppress them because they're not like you or they're not in your tribe or they're not from where you're from. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt and you didn't like it. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. This is really a profound thing to say and I, I want you to catch what's happening here. So what God is saying is, I am giving you a standard of justice from God's point of view and God is the one who holds the power. And he says, and I will use that power to enforce this justice for those who have no power. Notice how different that is from the code of Hammurabi. The people that didn't have any power, well, Hammurabi says, I'm gonna give you some rights, I'm gonna protect you a little bit, at least they'll have to pay a government fine if they do something to you. Well, appreciate that, you know. But God's justice is God himself holds the power and he says, I will hold you responsible. I will take up the case of the powerless. Completely different paradigm. Consequently, you don't see here, it says you can wrong an immigrant, but you'll have to pay a fine. You can take advantage of a fatherless child who has no power, but we're gonna tax you for that. It's not that kind of a system at all, is it? God says, no, there are no divisions. In the New Testament, you're gonna read several times where it says God is no respecter of persons, meaning God shows no favoritism. All of you are created in the image of God. Our Western idea that everyone is created with inalienable rights comes from Mount Sinai. It does not come from Hammurabi. Does that make sense? It's radically different way of looking at it. So God says, I have the power and I will wield my power not to prop up the socioeconomic system, but on behalf of those who don't have power. Again, in Exodus 23, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Now we're into the court system, which is one of the fundamental ideas in the law of Moses is, uh, and even in the Noah covenant with Noah. In other words, if you're Jewish, you understand that you have 613 laws to live by. But if you're Jewish, you think that Gentiles, non-Jews, have seven major laws that God gave Noah. And one of those is to establish courts of justice and to do justice. That that's incumbent upon all humanity. But it says, do not pervert justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. Now, who has the power? Not the judge, God. I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe 
for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress an immigrant, a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So he just, in these two laws, you see the two things that the Code of Hammurabi wants to bring into the justice system, power and privilege. You see both of those thrown out the window at Mount Sinai. God says, just because you're powerful, that's no difference than the orphan or the widow. And just because you're a judge does not mean you have the privilege to do what you want. In other words, it's not your law. It's my law. You see how very different this is? The, the law of Moses, Mount Sinai, radically different than anything that came before it in history. So very, very different. On again, and this is a powerful idea. You shall do no, now we're into Leviticus, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the context into which that is said, by the way, is in the terms of administering justice, is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, golden rule. Treat them the way you would like to be treated. Do not show partiality to either the poor or the rich. The powerful idea here, again, everything here is really powerful. So I just showed you Hammurabi, and most of the law systems in our world today are like Hammurabi's code. There's an innate desire for justice, but we've got to make some exceptions. You know, I mean, if you're in Iran, it's like, well, if you're a Sunni, you're going to get treated better, uh, or you're going to get treated not so well as a Shiite. And if you're in some other area, you're going to get treated better if you're higher socioeconomic class. In other words, justice is always tempered. That's not true here. Three things. The power belongs to God and God says, I will use it so that justice is done. I will use it on behalf of those who have no power. Privilege, it's not your privilege to set yourself up higher than someone else because I show no favoritism. And this passage is to me maybe the most important of all, is that judges are stewarding God's justice. Judges don't decide the law. Judges are simply stewards of the law that God gave. They don't have the luxury of showing partiality to the poor or partiality to the rich. You should treat everyone like your neighbor and do righteous judgment. So judges become something different than we unfortunately think of judges today in, in the popular sense. I'm not saying that this doesn't happen today in a, in a very positive way, but it's not the popular conception, but that judges are stewards of justice, not makers of justice. They're not the ones doing justice, they are stewarding God's justice. That's what the law of Moses says, and it's really very, very different. So let me pause for a second for question. Okay, um, were there rules in Israel for holding or owning slaves, and were those used to prop up socioeconomic power to an extent? Uh, great question. Could you have slaves in Israel? Yes, but the second half of that question is really important. 
Was that system used to prop up socioeconomic differences? No. So for example, bond service was allowed to Jews. And so you probably remember this, but here's, here's basically how this worked. So you get a fellow Jew and they go bankrupt and they can't pay their bills. And so a fellow Jew who owns a business says, you owe me a lot of money, you can't pay the money. And so what the person might do is become a bond servant. So in other words, I will enslave myself to you. And don't think of enslavement as you can do anything you want, but I will work for you for room and board to pay off my debt. That makes sense? That's bond service. In other words, I'm gonna be your slave for a period of time to work off my debt. You're gonna take me on to feed me and clothe me and take care of me and I'm gonna pay off the debt. If you remember in the law of Moses, you could only do that for six years because in the seventh year, all, everybody went free. And uh, one of the things the prophets talk to people about is in that seventh year, what happens if you take somebody on with the debt in year five? Well, you don't have much time to get it back. And they go, well, that's the way it works. You need to, in other words, there was a sense of stabilizing factor in society. It was a way for somebody at the bottom to get a new start through bond service, but you were going to be freed and you were gonna be on your feet. Think of it as, as bankruptcy in a really healthy way. So yes, they did allow that, but you can see the purpose of that is very different than slavery in the world. It's a way to get people up and back functioning in society. Great question. Okay, in certain places in the Old Testament, God tells the Israelites to kill people groups. Mm -hmm. For example, 1 Samuel, God tells Israel to kill the Amalekites and he includes everyone, infants and children. How does this set with the law? Well, it's God's law. This, uh, this is gonna be hard to answer briefly, but I'll do my best to give you a brief answer. Uh, first of all, this law is the law of Moses that governs the Jews. So I wanna step away from that for a second. That question doesn't really have anything to do with this, but it's an important question. So why would God tell them to destroy? The scripture tells you the answer to that question. And it's an answer you may or may not like, but I'm glad you asked because we're gonna let the scripture say what it wants to say and be what it wants to be. In other words, here's what God said. He said to the Israelites, I did not pick you because you were more righteous than the other people. I didn't pick you because you were better looking or nicer, I added that part. Basically, I didn't pick you because you were more righteous, you were better people than those. You deserved the same fate that they deserved. In other words, you too were rebels against God. God begins to redeem humanity by showing grace to a group of people and beginning the process of redemption from which Jesus would come through which everyone could be saved. Okay, so this is God's plan and why he picks a group of people. What does that mean then about the other people? That just like the Israelites, those other people were under a death sentence. Every human being deserves the consequences of their actions. In the Garden of Eden, this is just, this is what the Bible says, 
and I'm gonna argue this makes perfect sense. In the Garden of Eden, what happened when Adam and Eve rebel against God and say, we're gonna be God, not you, I reject you. You loved me, you cared for me, you created me, and I hate your guts, and I'm gonna go do my own thing, right? And they do. What happens? Death enters the world. Physically, death enters the world, and spiritually, death enters the world. A complete separation from God. This is where Christianity, radically different than secular thinking, is we believe that sin has alienated us from God, that we'd like to be our own God, but we are not. Consequently, all of humanity is under a death sentence, meaning if God lets you go the way you're gonna go, you will die and you will be condemned as a rebel before God. So when God says to execute this judgment on these people, he is simply executing the just judgment on rebels against God. That's what the Bible says about why God gave those instructions. If you think, you're gonna hate the Bible if you start with this assumption. People are born good, they are good, all those people were probably pretty good, then yes, God is a moral monster. That is not true. I mean, that's not even slightly historically true, let alone biblically true. Every one of us knows that we are not righteous that we do not deserve that, that we have sinned, we have all done things to each other, let alone to God, that would make us not nice people. So I don't think, I think if you have that, that idea, then you're not gonna like this God at all. And you're gonna see what the world has now. And here's my point. If you think people are born good and basically everybody's pretty good and everybody deserves this grace, Look around the world right now. How well is that working out? Not well at all because it's not true. In fact, this country was founded on the biblical idea that we are not born good, that we are born bent towards sin. You give us enough time and we will sin. Everybody has a two-year-old knows this. As I've said before, toddlers are just little sinners. Now I know that sounds offensive to you. They aren't sinners because they don't actually know what they're doing. But you know the difference between you and me and them? We behave the same way and we do know better. That's called sin. And so you get this sense that we understand that. Founding fathers understood that. That's why this country doesn't put power in the hands of one branch of government. We put power in three places, why? Because the founding fathers knew that we were bent towards sin and you let us have our own way, we would abuse any power that we have. And it was an attempt to control the basic depravity of humanity. And when I say depravity, I don't mean that everybody out here is a horrible, horrible uh, criminal. What I mean is, is that we are all bent towards sin. I don't mean that we can't do nice things, but we are fundamentally characterized by self-centeredness, by greed, by a desire for fame, a desire for self. We are all bent towards sin. 
So the scriptural idea is true. That is true about humanity. And the Bible acknowledges that and says, without Jesus Christ, we have no hope. We're gonna stand before the judge and we got nothing. We'll plead no contest. I did it, I'm guilty. So good question. So let's move on in history a little bit. And I wanna get into the prophets. The prophets understand justice as God's justice. But when the Israelites become more secular, meaning they move away from God and they began to look at life as temporal and very much about the quality of their life, which is the focus of a secular system, they begin to move toward a different kind of justice. In other words, they begin to embrace a self-centered kind of justice. So in 930 BC, you see the two nations. Remember we talked about Solomon died in 930 and then the 10 tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. They meet their fates at different times and they begin to go astray immediately. In our last lesson, we talked about the first king of Israel set up temples to worship golden calves. It's like major rebellion against God. And so the northern kingdom lasts until 722 BC when it is destroyed. The southern kingdom lasts longer until 586 BC. And this destruction, they think it's geopolitical. But God says, I'm the Lord of geopolitics. In other words, it's not a political problem. It's not a problem with your army not being big enough or your politics not being good enough or your foreign policy not being good enough. The fundamental problem with the fate of God's chosen people, Israel and Judah, is that you have departed from what I told you to do. One of the great ways they depart from that is in the idea of justice. They stop adhering to God's sense of justice. So Amos is a prophet, <clears throat> lives and prophesies about 765. And he is prophesying to Israel. Here's what he says, for example, thus says the Lord, not thus says Amos, thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Interesting. God says, you aren't doing justice, but I will. There's a price to be paid. You have been doing the things they're gonna talk about. And remember when God said, I'm going to exercise my power on behalf of those who have no power? Well, guess what? The reckoning is coming. So God is not just mad at Israel. I mean, that's kind of a very, that's a very limited understanding of the Bible. God's not mad at Israel. God's doing justice. This is what has to happen. The victims of the Israelites' oppressive behavior cry out to God. And what did God say in the law of Moses? I will hear their cry and I will stand up for the widow and the orphan and those who have no power in your society. That's what's happening. They are being judged by God's standard of justice. He says this, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Human dignity has no worth whatsoever. Poor people are commodities. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. In other words, rampant injustice. And then this beautiful passage. But what does God want? 
He says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is a call to return to God's justice. And God says, if you do not, I will take up the cause of those who have no power. At the same time, introduce you to another prophet, Micah. Micah prophesying about the same time, but he is prophesying to Judah. And he's saying something very similar. Listen to the theme. God's not saying, I don't like your economic policies, inflation's too high. Uh, I don't like your foreign policy, you align yourself with terrorist groups. He's not really, I mean, it's interesting to think about what God is not saying to them. He's not talking about their governance. He's talking about their, their commitment to his system of justice, to do what is right, to love your neighbor as yourself. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds, meaning plot to take advantage. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. In other words, the Israelites had slipped back into might makes right. If you have power, you're an exception. In other words, they're living the code of Hammurabi and God is holding them accountable for Mount Sinai, for true justice. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man at his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against you I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily or with pride for it will be a time of disaster. Meaning God said, I told you that I will intervene for the victims of injustice. And that's what God is doing. And he warns Judah in the south. Well, it turns out, spoiler alert, Judah listens. And those tribes repent, and you get kings that turn them back toward God and reform these practices and turn them back. But in the north, they do not. And so God sends this, uh, one more piece from Micah, by the way. Uh, I wanna to talk to you about Hosea. He's the last messenger. But I wanted to give you this because this is a, an iconic passage. Will the Lord be pleased with your sacrifices, uh, with the oil that you give me, uh, shall you give your firstborn for your transgression? He says, no, none of this stuff does justice. Here's what I've told you, is what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? It's a great passage to memorize. This is what God requires of us, is to be devoted to the things of the heart. Well, Hosea is one of the last prophets to, to uh, prophesy and to preach to the northern kingdom of Israel. Notice when he lives. He's prophesying right up to the time when the northern kingdom is destroyed and the Assyrians are the agents of that destruction. So this is the northern kingdom. Southern kingdom, right there. The northern kingdom of Israel is destroyed in 722 by the Assyrians and it is brutal. But here's what Hosea was preaching to them. He says, sow for yourselves righteousness and you will reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord. Listen, this is 200 years of preaching. And he's saying, again, there's still time to come back to God to repent. And what does repentance look like? Pay attention, what does repentance look like? It isn't go to church more often, although that would be good. What, what does he say? He said, you have plowed iniquity and you have reaped injustice. 
You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way, self-centeredness, and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people and your fortresses shall be destroyed because of their injustice. And then probably my favorite passage from the book of Hosea, they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. In other words, justice will be done. And sowing justice reaps steadfast love. It reaps a relationship with God. And sowing injustice reaps the wrath of God and God's destruction. In other words, God will take up the cause of the fatherless and the widow and the, those with no power. Well, God's judgment shows up in 722 when the Assyrian king Shalmaneser uh, conquers them. These reliefs are from a little bit later, but I wanna show you that God's justice is through the hands of the Assyrians is as brutal as the oppression. These guys are Assyrians, you can tell by their cool hats. These guys are Hebrews, you can tell by their hairdos, and they are being taken away into slavery. And that's exactly what happens. When the Assyrians conquer that northern kingdom, those 10 tribes, they deport those people everywhere. They become slaves, by the way. They're all enslaved, and they go to forced labor all over the Assyrian Empire. This is when the 10 tribes of Israel became the 10 lost tribes of Israel. They get scattered. And again, this is some of the torture that the Assyrians did. These, and these guys are Assyrians, and these guys are Hebrews. They sow the wind, they shall reap the whirlwind. And in Galatians, you see the same idea. In other words, God is the guarantor of justice. And so if we sow injustice, we will reap the judgment of God. If we sow justice, we will reap the friendship of God, if you will. Galatians says this beautifully. It's a great reminder to us. Do not kid yourself. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. You can't sow one thing and reap another. You can't sow injustice and reap a good relationship with God. He says, a man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. This is all about justice. The relationship with God is all about justice, harmony, a balance. I obey God. I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I love my neighbors myself. And God re reconciles us to him through the person of Jesus Christ. Somebody's gotta pay the price, and for those who turn to God, Jesus Christ paid your price and now we are reconciled. And it's, this passage is saying, don't kid yourself. Don't think Jesus Christ is going to reconcile you to me when you are sowing injustice. You can't be a rebel and get a pardon. Does that make sense? It's, just, it's, a, it's a basic idea of justice. God is fundamentally a just God. <clears throat> Time goes on. The northern kingdom is gone. It is now the province of Samaria, and it's ruled by the Assyrians. But in time, the Assyrians uh, become weak. This is the way empires rise, empires fall. And so they begin to become weak. And Judah 
begins to enter into alliances. Now we're moving forward, we're about 700 BC. Northern Kingdom has fallen. And Isaiah the prophet is sent to Judah. And listen to what God says to them. And just to let you know, in this parable, the Israelites are the grapevines. He says, let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines, built a watchtower. In other words, he, he worked hard. He cared for this land. He hewed out a wine vat and he looked for it to yield grapes. So in other words, this is, a, this is the parable of God caring for the Israelites, plants them in Israel, and looks for them to yield justice, obedience, loving their neighbor as themselves, not oppressing the poor and the powerless. And that's what he was looking for, but what did he find? He found rotten grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. And that's a, that's a phrase that means, what does justice demand? Are you in the right or am I in the right? Judge between me and my vineyard. What else could I have done? When I looked for it to yield grapes, it yielded rotten grapes. And I will tell you what I will do. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled down. In other words, God will depart from them. He says, and I will command the clouds that they no more rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, the Israelites. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So what was God looking for? What is the fruit? He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry to the Lord. So Judah is getting the same warning as they depart from the idea of God's justice. And God says, this is what's gonna happen. Jeremiah, fast forwarding 100 years more, and Judah has not listened. And so, Jeremiah says this, O house of David, thus says the Lord, execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, lest my wrath go forth like fire. In other words, God says, justice is going to be done. If you will not be good stewards of my justice, I will intervene on behalf of the victims of justice. And I will burn with none to quench it. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. Judah doesn't turn and consequently in 586, the Babylonians invade, they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple and the people in Judah also go into exile. So I'll just stop the story there because uh, you know that God returns them. I mean, there's more to the story. There's, there's hope. If they will repent, God will restore them. But what you've seen here are two interesting things. One, the contrast between human idea of justice and God's idea of justice. The human idea of justice is very imperfect 
and it's not evenly carried out. And it depends on who has the most power and who has the most power tends to do things that are in their self-interest. God is the guarantor of justice to his people and God intervenes for the powerless. That's why the gospel is so powerful amongst oppressed people. It's not only powerful amongst oppressed people. I mean, in early Rome, it wasn't just slaves and uh, poor people that became Christians. There were also uh, executives. There were royalty that became Christians. I mean, in 300 AD, the emperor Constantine becomes a Christian reportedly. But my point is Christianity is not just for those who are disenfranchised, but you can understand why it spread like wildfire because they knew that the emperor would not uphold their cause. They knew that the justice system was stacked against them. And here comes the good news of a God and they were not used to gods who cared about them either. Here is a God who actually loves you. Here is a God who will use his power to intervene for the powerless. That, you and I don't think that's a radical message. You know why? Because we are the inheritors of that idea. But if you go back when the gospel begins to be preached and if you go into the world today in places and the gospel's preached, that is radical news. That is the best news you could hear. It is the gospel, it's good news. And so we get a little bit, I think, we're a little spoiled, and I'm glad we are. I'm glad we don't live in oppressive circumstances. But I want you to realize how powerfully different nothing in history has ever been like this. So this power in the gospel has everything to do with God's sense of justice, and God is the one for the powerless. Question? What is the difference between transgressions, trespasses, and iniquities? And does God do justice among them differently? Good question. Those words, by and large, in both Hebrew and in Greek, are synonyms. They have slight nuances of meaning and slightly different etymological uh, domains, but fundamentally, they're synonyms. And it's not like uh, an iniquity is a class one offense and a transgression is a class three offense. Good question. There are several words. They're fundamentally synonyms. Okay. So what, what's the point of this? I want you to see two things. Uh, one is how radically different God's justice is from any human system of justice that has ever been or is now. God's sense of justice is the only pure sense of justice. The second thing that I want you to see is the idea of God's justice is that the originator of what is right and what is wrong is God, not humans. And there are two interesting takeaways from this. So what, are the, what is the progress, prophetic message on justice? And you notice I'm intentionally avoiding terms like racial justice, social justice, reproductive justice, gender justice, criminal justice, because that's, I mean, I know we say those things and I'm not trying to get onto us for saying those things. That's not God's sense of justice at all. That's a very 
human secular way of looking at justice. And here's, here's exactly what's encoded into that. Justice, God's justice is not selective. It's not just for me or my cause. When you start dividing justice up into social justice, racial justice, gender justice, reproductive justice, you know what that really says? I want what I think is right for my cause or people like me. That's not necessarily bad that you are standing up for people that are oppressed, but don't kid yourself. That's not a Christian idea of justice. Do you want justice for those people? Yes, I'm not arguing that. But if what I'm interested in is X kind of justice, what am I really saying? I'm interested in my cause. I don't really care about your cause. Have you ever noticed how people that demonstrate for causes, how there will be people demonstrating for this cause because it's the cause of the day or it's getting a lot of play in the media and nobody's demonstrating for this cause? or they'll be demonstrating for this group of people. And it's like, do you not realize this group of people is way more oppressed than that group of people? Yeah, but they're not my people, or it's not my cause. That's a very worldly way of thinking about it. I like that we're thinking about justice, don't get me wrong, that's a good thing, but that's not a, a godly sense of justice. Jesus said it this way, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do that. He says, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles do that. Martin Luther King picked up on this idea, by the way, uh, in his letter from the Birmingham, Birmingham jail, which is worth reading, by the way. If you've never read it, just search for it and pick it up and read it. But this is where this famous line comes from. He said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. That is a biblical idea. Now, you shouldn't be surprised. And Martin Luther King, his conception, his worldview was of a biblical kind of justice. And consequently, you'll notice that his rhetoric on racial justice, for example, was very different than what you will hear today. Martin Luther King is not the poster child for justice today because his idea of justice was not single cause justice, uh, single people kind of justice. His idea was very biblical. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. In other words, all groups of people, not just people that look like me or look like you or just my class of people or this group of people. Much more biblical idea of justice. Justice is not selective. We don't have the luxury to only advocate to only speak God's justice in the causes that matter to us. Second thing is we are stewards of God's justice. This is a powerful idea. The more you think about this idea, the, I think the more impactful it's going to be to you is I don't, not only do I not have the luxury to only be interested in injustice that affects me or that I happen to have a heart for, by all means, you can't do everything, so do something. But don't kid ourselves that, that any injustice is different from any other injustice. Our God cares about all the oppressed, all of the downtrodden, not just certain kinds of people or certain groups of people. And that leads to the idea 
that we are stewarding God's justice. It's not my cause, it's his cause. And I am a representative or a steward of my God. I think that will make us bolder. I think that's the way to stay with Martin Luther King as an example. I think that's one of the things that emboldened Martin Luther King. He didn't see, I remember he gave a speech, I'll get this wrong, two days before he was uh, shot, really close. And he basically gave the, I've been to the mountain speech, it kind of the Moses, Mount Nebo kind of a, he's playing into that. He says, I may not get there with you, but we will get there. And the idea is, this isn't Martin Luther King's movement. This isn't Martin Luther King's justice. I'm just a steward of God's justice, just like you are. Does that make sense? That is a powerful idea. Now it's not a matter of do I want to be in favor of justice? No, I must be in favor of my God's justice. It's the same thing as the idea. You, you understand this. We as Christians understand this idea very well when it comes to compassion. Why are we compassionate to people, even the people of the world who don't deserve compassion? Because that's what my God told me to do, and that's who my God is, and I am being formed into the image of my God. I want that to be part of who I am, is I have compassion for people whether they deserve it or not. Why do we forgive people whether they deserve it or not? Because I was forgiven when I did not deserve it. You see, our rationale for what we do isn't, I'm gonna forgive you because I like you. Not forgiving you because I don't like you. Or I'm gonna be compassionate to you because you look like me, I don't really care that much about you. We don't have that luxury, do we? That's not what our, our God was like. Same is true with justice. We just don't think about it that way. We don't have the luxury to sit on the sidelines when injustice is happening. Our God, is interested in all of the oppressed. And so we too are interested in injustice. We are interested in a justice system that is righteous and treats people, particularly those who are marginalized well. So if we think about the idea of justice, the way we think about compassion, the way we think about forgiveness, I think we'll have a healthier idea of, of our relationship and our involvement with justice. So God's justice, fortunately, is very gracious. God's justice offers redemption. Contrary, for example, here's probably the most stark difference, even starker than Hammurabi. Hammurabi was a good guy compared to some things that are going on now. We have certain ideologies in the American culture right now that are all about sin and there is no redemption. Once you have sinned against the prevailing ideology, you are canceled, you are vilified, and you can never be forgiven. You can be a hero one day in this culture and you can be a sinner literally the next day because you said the wrong thing. And it only became the wrong thing yesterday. I mean, seriously, you know what I'm talking about. That is an ugly little system of justice, isn't it? Because it's all punitive and no redemption. God's system of justice doesn't have that kind of hierarchy and God's system of justice always allows for repentance. The point of it is not punitive, the point of it is redemptive. And that's the kind of people we are. 
And I, I would like for you to think, and I just cherry picked the prophets. I think I only showed you five prophets, but you will find this in almost every prophet is God's idea of justice is preached to his people because how they felt about justice was a barometer of how faithful they were to God. How they felt about justice was a barometer of how faithful they were to God. Okay? So, what does that mean for us? What it means for us is to care about injustice. Does that mean that you need to go get a placard? Uh, you know, go down to Hobby Lobby and get a placard and get a sign, get five of them, and make five different causes and go out and march? Well, it's not a bad thing to peacefully uh, express your views, but the point is not that I need to go do something about everything. The point is we need to be aware of that. We don't have the luxury of living in comfort while others don't, in the sense that our God is concerned about that, so we are concerned about that. And that's part of the idea of Christians being good for human flourishing. We actually don't just care about our fellow Christians, we actually want everyone to flourish. We want everyone to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, but even if you don't, I still want good for you and your children. Does that make sense? That's the kind of people that we are. And it's good for us to be reminded of that. Well, next week, uh, talk about the prophet Jonah, and I'll be out of town, so Bill Search is going to uh, step in. I think you're gonna find it really fascinating, uh, the approach that Bill's gonna take with this. The prophet Jonah is probably one of the more complex and profound little stories. Read it this week. It's short, short, short little story. It is amazing, just as a matter of literature, forget for a moment it's inspired, how in the world could you write a story that short and have that many profound ideas in it? And so it'll be interesting to see how Bill picks up this thread. So next week, Jonah, a big old whale, and some serious repentance. See you then. <laughs>